Hi everybody, this is Beth, and today we are back for episode 77 of the True Crime B&B. This is a just one B. This is just me today. There's no Bailey. There is no guest. It is only me. So I'm going to do my very best not to sound sad like I did in the last episode that I did by myself. But I have a story for you that is a bad guy story. This week, you're getting a Just One B, which is what we used to call our bonus episodes back when we had time to do bonus episodes. But when I get my guests, then we will get back to the format that you're used to, and I will probably play the good guy again very soon. Today, I'm telling you a very sad story about a young woman named Cami Ostwald, who was born on June 14, 1981. Cammie was the only child from the marriage of her parents, Edward and Vicki Ostwald, until their divorce. Cammie also had some older half-brothers who adored her. They all lived in Clinton Township, Michigan, which is on the northeast outskirts of the Detroit metropolitan area. Cammie was very loved and cherished, and in the catastrophic event she might ever get lost or stolen, her parents had had a fingerprint card made for her when she was five years old. As she got older, Cammie loved children, and her goal was to one day become a caretaker for mentally or physically disabled children. She just had so much love to share with them that she knew she could make their lives better. She loved the color purple. She listened to the band Kiss. She was strong and energetic, and she had some big dreams. By October 1997, Cammie was 16 and had been dating a nice young man named Anthony Romero, who was 17 and was just head over heels for Cammie. He cooked meals for her, he wanted to be with her forever, and even bought her a necklace saying as much, together forever. But Cammie was also a little bit rebellious at times, and the relationship with her dad, Edward, and mom, Vicky, could sometimes be complicated and difficult. Her parents, now divorced and trying to keep their lives on track and keep their daughter away from people that they thought were a bad influence, tried to set boundaries to that end. A friend of Cammie's, 19-year-old Donald Godsey, had been hanging around against Vicki Ostwald's wishes when Vicki wasn't home. He had been told by Vicki not to come into her apartment anymore, but he ignored her and persisted in coming over anyway. And Cammie persisted in letting him come around. Vicki had responded by filing a criminal complaint against Donald Godsey. Cammie had called her mom heartless and said that Godsey didn't have anywhere else to go. But be that as it might have been, it wasn't Vicky's problem. She had a daughter to take care of, and she didn't like him being around. This had led to a heated argument between Cammie and Vicky the night before Vicky's 52nd birthday, October 7, 1997. Cammie clearly didn't appreciate or respect the boundaries that her mom had set, but Vicky was the mom responsible for making decisions to keep her daughter safe, and by the time they went to bed, they were exhausted and sick of fighting. The next morning, Vicky got up and went to work, thinking that when she got home that night, she and Cammie would have a nice birthday dinner and that the argument would have cooled down and blown over by then and that things would be okay. What Vicky wasn't aware of was that Cammie had run away the day after the argument on Vicky's birthday. Vicky called Edward, who didn't have any idea where their daughter might be, but they called around and there was no sign of her and she didn't come back. They called police and her mom filed a missing persons report, but Cammie had run away twice before. With Cammie, the police didn't show any real alarm about the fact that she had done it again. Her parents, however, were frantic to find out where she was. 
It's not clear whether Donald Godsey, the guy they had fought about, actually knew that Cammie was going to run away. But while he was in jail, he had asked a friend of his, 19-year-old Jason Cumming, to look out for Cammie while Donald was locked up. Cammie and Jason were not friends and had never known one another prior to Donald Godsey being arrested. The day after Cammie had run away, October 8th, Godsey was arraigned on a misdemeanor charge of entry without permission. After his arraignment, he was allowed to leave custody in order to go obtain $500 for his bond. Once he left the jail, he simply didn't come back. And we never hear about him again in this story. So he's not the bad guy here, a little bit. He's a little bit of the bad guy here, but he's not the big bad guy here. But Vicky didn't hear a word from or about her daughter, and she never did know where Cammie was after October 7th. But again, this wasn't the first time that Cammie had run away. The first and second times that Cammie had run away from her father, Edward Oswald's home, she had been 14 and the second time, 15. Both of these times, upon being found, she had been sent to the Macomb County Youth Home, where she had received counseling both times. After the second stint at the county youth home, upon Cammie's release, the counseling seemed to be sinking in, and Vicky had been optimistic. Their relationship had seemed stronger, more stable, less volatile. Vicky had thought things were so much better, and she was just crushed that her daughter had taken off again. Not knowing where Cammie was was the worst feeling. She just wanted to know that Cammie was safe. She waited for over three weeks to find out. Cammie was not at all safe. On October 30th, the night before Halloween, is often called Hallow's Eve, or Mischief Night in other parts of the country. But in Michigan, Devil's Night is the most common name. It was traditionally a night filled with annoying types of mischief like toilet papering people's houses or soaping windows. When I grew up in Indiana, we used to empty bags of feed corn kernels on people's doorsteps, which we Hoosier kids cleverly called Corning, go figure. It was nothing too dangerous or harmful, though. But over time, people started escalating the pranks, and they began to morph into real vandalism, even arson. Abandoned properties sometimes even got burned down. In the 1980s, during the obscenely cartoonish satanic panic, when parents everywhere were clutching their pearls and wondering what was going on with the young generation, Devil's Night became a common subject for movies and urban legends and counterculture song lyrics. Teenagers loved the idea of something their parents hated, so they embraced hip-hop, punk, death metal genres, just like most of their parents would have at the same age. But this was the rebellious environment that Cammie had wandered into when she was gone. On October 30th, 1997, 23 days after she had run away, Cammie had ended up at a small party at the house of 17-year-old Randy Kobici in Sterling Heights. It was not really a party. It was more just a group of teenagers hanging out. But on this night, Jason Cumming was there and had been smoking cannabis and had allegedly ingested four doses of LSD, although there's no testimony on the strength of LSD that he actually took. If you know anything about the effects of LSD, you probably realize it's known for warping the perception of time, for bringing on hallucinations, and in the case of bad trips, for evoking dark emotions, fear, anxiety, panic, and paranoia. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, while some homicides have been attributed to bad LSD trips, aggression is not a common response to taking LSD. So the following narrative of what took place at that house the night of October 30th, 1997, should be taken with a grain of salt and not taken as proof, 
that what happened to Cammie was due to drug-induced psychosis, while Jason Cumming had certainly used quite a lot of the drug. Unfortunately, he also had a fixation on the idea of Devil's Night and chose Cammie as the victim of acting out his fantasy. Cumming and Cammie were in a downstairs bedroom at the house and began arguing. It's not been revealed about the reason for the argument. Randy Kabichi, who was hosting the gathering, heard the yelling and went to knock on the bedroom door. He wanted to find out what was going on and see if he could get them to cut the drama, chill out, and stop spoiling the night for everyone else. But when Randy knocked, Cumming had blocked the door and wouldn't let Kabichi in, so he quickly gave up and walked away. Sometime later, Kabichi heard screaming in the backyard and went again to find out what was happening. When he found the source of the screaming, he saw that Cumming was holding a baseball bat and was beating Cammie with it. She was still alive. She was fighting him. She was trying to get away. Randy didn't intervene. And when Cumming continued hitting her with the bat and told Randy Kobichi to go inside and not come outside again, Kobichi did as he was told. He went inside and he stayed there. Kobichi waited for 10 minutes or so and decided to go see if the beating had ended yet. When he went back into the backyard again, Cumming now had his hands on Cammie's throat, strangling her. Cumming growled again at Kobichi to go back in the house. Kobichi went back in the house and looked out through a window, not sure what to do. Most people witnessing this level of violence in their home would have intervened, or at least called police. Kobichi just watched out through a window while Cumming continued strangling Cammie, trying to kill her. He watched him punch her some more kick her, and stomp on her while she was on the ground. He watched as coming threw her up on top of a wooden fence, then pushed her over the top to the other side. He watched as coming then climbed over the fence himself, dragged her into the woods, where Kabichi was no longer able to see them. A short time later, coming reappeared, climbing back over the fence into the yard, picked up some cans of gasoline, and then climbed back over again towards the woods. A few minutes later, Kobichi saw flames shoot up in the air in the distance. Cumming later returned to the house, went into the bathroom to take a shower, and Kobichi went and found a change of clothes for him to put on after his shower. No one called the police. Two days later, on November 1st, three boys found the burned body of a young woman located 100 yards from the Clinton River and reported it to the police. When the discovery of the Jane Doe was announced at 5 p.m. that day, 25 calls came in from parents who had missing children in the area. One of the calls they received came from Edward Oswald, Cammie's father. Edward provided police with a recent photo of Cammie. Later, he came in again to give them the fingerprint card that they had made when she was five, back when they thought they would never really need it. Sixteen officers from the Sterling Heights Police Department were assigned to the case. Canvassing and questioning led police to a tip that there had been a small party on Friday night October 30th, near where the body had been discovered. And on Monday, November 3rd, the remains were identified by the Michigan State Police Crime Lab as belonging to Cammie Ostwald. Of all the indignities that she had suffered, she had actually died from blunt force head trauma. Police investigated the small party they had been tipped off about and discovered that Cammie had actually been present. They checked into everyone who had been there, and after finding that Jason Cumming had a police record as a juvenile, they requested and were granted permission from his parents to search their home. As I mentioned before, Jason Cumming had used a lot of LSD that night, but unfortunately, he also had a fixation on the idea of Devil's Night. 
In Jason's room, they found a piece of notebook paper with handwritten lyrics to a track by a horrorcore rap duo called State of Psychosis. A few of the lyrics included, and I don't want to hear a word about my lack of rap finesse. I'm old enough to be your mom, so hush. This track was called Hallow's Eve by State of Psychosis. Glass City Madness, Hallow's Eve. See for yourself if you don't believe. Devil's Night Before Halloween. Never be the same because of what you've seen. Black Gloves, Derby Hat, Switchblade, Louisville Bat, Prophet F, The Prophet is False, Body on the Ground, Blood on the Walls, Trapped in the City of Glass, Unmistakable, Shit, the Count is Unbreakable, I Just Grab My Cane and Smash on the Popo Punk Bitch Ass. That's for the grief that you gave me, so I burned down your house with your wife and your baby. I ain't sparing no feelings, guy. Oops, the slug in your back? Nice try. It's Glass City Madness, you better believe. All hell breaks loose on Hallow's Eve. Enter my city on Hallow's Eve. Once you're here, you won't want to leave. I am the one known as Black Bart. Can't find your bitch because I tore her apart. Glass City Madness, Hallow's Eve. See for yourself if you don't believe. Devil's Night Before Halloween. Never be the same because of what you've seen. Glass City Madness, Hallow's Eve. See for yourself if you don't believe. Devil's Night, get burned up like toast. Gang sweep time. Gotta get ghost. And in case you're wondering, Glass City is a reference to Toledo, Ohio, which is just below the state line and just over an hour south of Detroit. Now, I'm not one who thinks we should censor music. Not at all. But listening to those lyrics, which Jason had personally transcribed by hand while he was serving time, you can hear almost a narrative of what Jason fantasized about doing to someone and ultimately did do to Cammie. Black gloves, Louisville bat, body on the ground, blood on the walls or fence, smashed with a cane or bat, a woman brutalized and burned. Jason was taken into custody on Monday, November 3rd and arraigned two days later on first-degree murder charges. Cammie had been found partially clothed, but the fire had damaged her clothing beyond being able to obtain any useful forensic evidence. Cumming had showered and washed his clothing, removing any blood evidence that might have been on them. The baseball bat used to bludgeon Cammie was never recovered. Randy Kubici was the main witness providing the details of what had happened to Cammie. He testified that Cumming had threatened him if he turned him in and said he would have his gang contacts kill him and the others who had been in the house at the time of the murder. Cumming was known to have been arrested five times as a juvenile, having been released on probation in July 1996, but it's not clear whether he really had any actual gang affiliation. Friends said about him that he was very immature, impressionable, had poor judgment, and used a lot of drugs. He would do almost anything someone suggested, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. The Devil's Night song lyrics by State of Psychosis that he had obsessed over were used in court to illustrate that Cumming had fantasized about killing someone on the night before Halloween. He might have picked a fight with Cammie, they might have just not liked one another, or it might have been that Cammie was just there and vulnerable and convenient and he just acted out his fantasy. In 1998, Cumming agreed to plead no contest to second-degree murder. No contest is a plea which acknowledges that the prosecution has enough evidence to show guilt. Some states consider no contest to be an admission of guilt without actually pleading guilty, while others do not. In states that do not consider it to be an admission of criminal guilt, it may provide some protection to the defendant in the civil case that could be brought against them later. Cummings said that he would not plead guilty because he didn't remember doing it, which could have been true after four hits of LSD, in August 1997, he was sentenced to 50 to 75 years in prison for Cammie's murder. 
He is still incarcerated at Ionia Correctional Facility and will be first eligible for parole on August 1, 2040, at which time he will be 62. His maximum incarceration date is noted as November 29, 2060, when he would be 82 years old. Randy Kubici, who watched as Cammy was beaten with a baseball bat, then strangled, then beaten and kicked and stomped, then thrown over a fence, and then as her killer came back to get gasoline to set her on fire, who could have and should have called police or intervened in some other way to prevent her death, but who instead offered Jason Cumming a shower and a change of clothing, Kobichi was not charged with anything related to Cammy's death, not even accessory after the fact. Several months after Cammy's death, however, Randy Kobichi himself was charged with first-degree murder after he beat his aunt Sandra Waniak, age 46, to death with a hammer because he said she had threatened his sister's child. Oddly, the aunt he killed was awaiting her own trial on a charge of assault with intent to commit murder. In response to the outrage felt by the public that this teenager literally watched Cammy being murdered and just did nothing, a law was proposed in the Michigan State Legislature. At the time, around the country, nine other states had already passed laws requiring a person witnessing harm to a minor to intervene or call police. The bill in Michigan, known as Cammy's Law, was passed in 1999 by the legislature and signed into Michigan law. At Cammy's funeral on November 8, 1997, Cammy's mom, Vicki, looked out across the packed church and with a stricken but strong voice said, quote, Cammie always wanted to be popular. You friends and family are unbelievable. She's looking down now and saying thank you, end quote. The people attending wore purple ribbons in her honor. Her heartbroken father, Edward, begged runaways like Cammie to at least let their parents know they're in a safe place, saying, quote, Please, if you're out there, call your parents. Don't let them not know where you are. Cammie's brothers planned a benefit to raise awareness of the issue of teen runaways and also raise money for local youth homes and runaway shelters. In the big picture, Cammie was not all that different from every other 16-year-old. She was on the cusp of adulthood, frustrated by not having the independence that she thought she was ready for. She wanted to be around people that cared about her, and unfortunately, she took the sight of Donald Godsey over her mom, Vicky. It's so easy for teenagers to fall into the misconception that their parents aren't on their side, that their parents can never understand what they're going through. What they don't understand is that parents, and I will admit it's most and certainly not all parents, but in general, parents know and understand more than their kids think they do. Most parents went through the same kind of rebellion, the same kind of insecurity, the same kind of longing for something different and better than what they grew up with. Most teenage girls had screaming matches with their moms and thought all along their moms were the biggest squares ever, but eventually they might find out their parents were their biggest supporters. So many of us who fought with our parents later came back to cherish that relationship, once getting past the age of insecurity about everything. But Cammie never had that chance. Vicky never had the chance to feel the sweetness and closeness of a relationship with her adult daughter. And I grieve that for them. I grieve that Edward and Vicky never got to see Cammie come back to them with adult confidence and accept the depth of their love, which can be suffocating to a 16-year-old. So Cammie, rest in peace. And Jason, rest in prison until November 29, 2060. Thank you, crime family, for being here with me solo today. I'm sorry, I know you prefer when I have Bailey or a guest, 
but I just couldn't work it out this week. So I hope you're having a good week. I love you to pieces and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Since Puss didn't interrupt me today. She just had so much to love with. She just had so much. Fuck, I'm going to start over. And after his arraignment, he was not allowed to leave custody. After his arraignment, he was allowed to leave custody or mischief, or mischief, fuck, or mischief night. Now you're just getting what you get. Sorry about that.